What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and I have a special guest, Dr. Schur, on the line today. And we're going to go into the research and the weeds on all kinds of things as it relates to medical and health and nutrition, um, especially in the ketogenic community. How are you doing, doctor? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on today. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, giving me the time to have you on. Um, I'm kind of losing my voice, so if I totally fade out, please forgive me. All right. So, yeah, if, if you'll just kind of give the audience a little intro, a little bio on kind of what got you into this space in the first place, that'd be great. Yeah, so I'm a cardiologist in San Diego, and, uh, you know, way back when, when I was doing my cardiology training, I was I was focused on prevention more than sort of the interventional side of cardiology, and I, I did a combined preventative, integrative, and general cardiology fellowship, and had big hopes for saving the world, right? Uh, preventing heart disease and stomping it out. And then, you know, once you get into regular practice and, and see the world as it is, you realize that that what you, the tools you have aren't necessarily the tools that are going to work. And time and time again, you can only handle so many instances where the patients just aren't getting better and you're not having the impact you want that it seemed like it was definitely had, I had to start looking for something new. I had to find a different way to make a bigger impact. And started working with a good friend of mine uh, who had been in the keto world for you know a couple of decades already. He had he'd been doing it ever since he was a marine, and he really introduced me to it. And once you start getting experience with it, and you can see the impact that you have on people's lives, um, and you can see how different it is than the the status quo that's been taught for for years and decades. It just really opened my eyes, and I, I dove a little deeper into the science. And it's there was really no turning back at that point, you know. And and I'm not the kind of guy who says everybody has to have one way of doing things, but the fact that this wasn't talked about in medicine, that it wasn't a usual approach for people, um, kind of blew my mind. And and I sort of made it my mission to try and change that. And and hopefully, you know me and the rest of the doctors in this community are having some sort of an impact on the medical community. But that's sort of the goal, to to make this low-carb lifestyle a standard part of medical practice because it, it works so well and so many people can benefit. That Why why aren't we doing it? Out of curiosity, what, what is taught as it relates to keto, like in the in the textbooks and like as you're going through, um, you know, to get your doctorate and everything, what, what is portrayed as it relates to keto? Yeah, basically nothing. Uh, really nothing. I mean, the only, the only real time that the word keto comes up is ketoacidosis, which is a life threatening condition in type one diabetics who aren't taking their insulin. And, uh, so when a regular doctor hears ketosis or keto, if they're not versed in the low carb world, they're going to immediately go to ketoacidosis and think, well, that's dangerous. That's life threatening. We can't do that. But they're two completely different things. Uh, so, so it's not really taught at all. And, you know, nutrition in general isn't really taught at all either, but when it is taught, it's always the, the low fat, um, hyperbole basically, because that's what's been put down from, from decades, from poor research from, you know, generations ago. So there's not hardly anything, uh, that's taught, but the other, the other side of things is just what's taught about lifestyle in general, Versus what's taught about drugs. I mean, mm-hmm. I learned everything about pharmacokinetics, about how these drugs work in your body, down to the cellular level, how they interact with each other. 
And I learned hardly anything about how exercise improves your health and, and how different fitness levels can impact your health and how different nutrition programs impact your health and how sleep impacts your health. Like that, that was barely even given lip service. Um, so it's clear it's a, it's a pharmacokinetic, a drug-driven type of education. Now, hopefully that's changing somewhat, albeit very slowly, and maybe not in the best ways, but but it's starting to at least get on the radar screen and people are starting to realize that that lifestyle is a more important part than it's been given credit for in medical training. Why why I mean going to the to the you know backbone of it all, why do you think that's kind of the shift that's occurred? Like why are the pharmacokinetics kind of given the greater importance over like the nutrition and lifestyle? Just just like what what started that, that trend in the in the first place? Well, when you look back at like the the incredible major breakthroughs in medicine, like antibiotics, clearly one of them. Um, you know, being able to give drugs for anesthesia to have surgery, clearly major breakthroughs. And these are drug-related breakthroughs, you know, pharma pharmacologic breakthroughs. And it, it sort of um, taught us like the miracles of medicine, you know, the miracles of, of drugs and medications. And, you know, before you had antibiotics, if you had an infection – you know, kind of good luck. Chances weren't very good. So that one intervention saved millions and millions of lives. And, and you know, when you look at, we talk about the relative risk reduction and the absolute risk, risk reduction, when you talk about evidence, um, scientific evidence and how big of an impact you have, these were phenomenal impacts. So I can clearly, clearly see why people would start with the mindset that drugs are good. Drugs can really, really help us. But then when you get past that to sort of the more drugs of modern society, we're not having those types of breakthroughs really at all anymore. Instead, instead of, you know, having where 99% of people would die, now 2% of people are dying. Instead, our drugs now are having where half of a percent are dying, now a quarter percent are dying or something along those lines. You know, the impact has been diminished so much, but a lot of the medical teachings in the medical profession is still in the mindset of what what has happened before with these amazing drug discoveries of the past and one doesn't equal the other and i think there's a there's a little disconnect there that we need to realize what do you think um i, I just, I just want to kind of dive into the weeds here so what what do you think needs to happen like in an ideal world what kind of shift would occur would, would it be like a just a change in thought process altogether between like the the medical community and just the general population Oh boy, yeah. Where to begin? That's that's definitely a big question. So this change and shift obviously does need to happen because um, if you're not thinking about it, it's not going to happen, right? So if you're a doctor and you're just programmed to to give your medications and you're not thinking about lifestyle because either you don't practice healthy lifestyles, you don't believe in it yourself, or not you don't believe in it, but you don't make the the time for it, and you haven't been taught it, how are you going to educate your patient about it? You know. Um, someone who has no experience with it and no real knowledge is probably the worst person to be giving advice about it. And, uh, but yet if you turn to your doctor for, for advice, that's, that might be who you get, you know? So part of it is, is educating the physicians about it, um, or any healthcare practitioner for that matter about it. But the other part is, you know, is, is a much bigger aspect and that's just changing the way the, the whole atmosphere of medicine, because, you know, when you're a primary care doctor and you've got 
15 minutes with your patient and you've got to document everything in your electronic health record and you've got to check all the right boxes to make sure you're you're doing the right diagnoses and addressing them on paper so that your medical group gets paid for them and then you have you have to recognize the quality measures of hitting blood pressure and LDL and blood sugar targets that have been set forth by your group i mean who's got time or energy to to spend to talk to your patients about that so the structure of medicine needs to change as well, which is obviously an enormous, enormous undertaking. But I mean, there's hope. There, there are people who are trying to structure clinics that involve more than just a doctor. And I think that's part of the key. I mean, the doctor can't necessarily be the end-all be-all for all things that the patient needs. But that's where you have the so-called mid-level providers or health coaches or nurse practitioners or Someone who's, whose job it is not to prescribe medication, but whose job it is to talk to you about lifestyle and the importance of it and how that interacts with your health and with your medications. And, you know, these clinics are not easy to set up, but we're starting to see more of them pop up. And, and Chris Kresser is one of the, the biggest proponents of this. He just wrote a book. Oh, boy, of course, I'm blanking on the title of this book. I apologize about that. But no. his, whole, his whole point of his book is um, – we need to consider these types of practices. He's big in functional medicine, but whether you believe in functional medicine or not, the key to his type of practice is is a team approach and not just a doctor top-down approach. Um, so finding ways to make those more prevalent so that we can impact more people in that way is another big key. But but you got to start with the doctors buying in and the doctors believing and agreeing and understanding the importance of of lifestyle interventions. Yeah, I think I, mean, I was thinking the other day, like a doctor, if they've only got, you know, a set amount of time to, to speak with their patient, they might wind up doing more harm than good if they tried to give a very high level view of what the ketogenic diet was, even if they were advocates for it. Because if a patient, you know, didn't have the the, the drive or the, just the, the knowledge to, to look into the details behind that, a 15 minute conversation about the ketogenic diet might do more damage than, than the opposite. Yeah, and that's a, that's a fantastic point because there, you know, usually lifestyle coaching from a doctor is eat less, move more. And, you know, we know that that doesn't work. Um, so if that's failing and then the doctor says, huh, maybe I heard something about this low carb ketogenic diet. Maybe we should give that a try. But the patient's on insulin and the patient's on, you know, three other diabetes medications and the doctor has no experience with it and just says, all right, well, go give this a try. Cut your carbs down to 20 grams and see what happens. And doesn't adjust the insulin, doesn't adjust the diabetes medication, doesn't warn them about testing their blood sugar more frequently when they do this. And all of a sudden, their blood sugar bottoms out to 30 and they you know, they have to get rushed to the ER. This doctor is going to say, oh, my God, this diet is horrible. It's killing people. What am I doing here? When you know, Without realizing that there are, there are steps that you have to take. So that is a, that is an excellent point. And, and you know – the, the podcast world and the internet world is blowing up in a way with keto resources. So I think more importantly, maybe than the doctor having to know everything about the world of ketosis and the ketogenic diet is having a couple of resources to send the patients to. And whether that's your podcast, whether that's my podcast, whether that's our websites or diet doctor website or, or whatever, you know, there are plenty of, of resources out there. Um, and people just have to be made aware of them to know where to start to get the information. Um, because if, if your doctor, someone said this to me recently, if, if your doctor cares more about your health than you do, you're in trouble to begin with. So we have to inspire people and empower them to, to take charge of this as well on their own. I completely agree. I think people, and it's, it's a strange phenomenon to me because I mean I I care a lot about my health 
and and it blows my mind how separated people are from what's actually going on in their body, what they're actually putting in their body, and they just don't seem to even care. They'll just go to a doctor, get a 15-minute consult, and then just take that as fact and run with it. But, I mean, if people just spent 30 minutes you know, listening to a podcast or you know, doing some Google searches, a whole new world would open up to them, and then they, they wouldn't put so much pressure on the doctor to change their life and turn it around. Yeah, and, and in a way, you, you kind of can't blame people for being confused in a way, right? Because there's so much information out there and so much is contradictory. And, you know, the way people abuse science um, to try and back up their claims is is really scary. And uh, so I, I see why people get confused. And that's and that's why it's so important to, to find a couple sources that sort of rise above the rest and are not all one-sided um, you know, there's one way to do it, but are, are able to look at, at both sides of the story or all sides of the story because frequently there's more than just two sides. Um, and, and those are the sources that, that people need to be directed to to kind of get an idea of of what really is the truth and, and what are the – you know, we can't expect everybody to be able to dissect a scientific study um, when, you know, the media portrays it as something amazing and it's really nothing of the sort. It, it's hard to expect your average person to be able to do that. So we need sites, we need places to direct people where they can kind of get the true information and and from there be able to hopefully make up their own minds. And But here's the other thing. Experimentation is fantastic. People need to be – need to understand that it's okay to experiment and doctors too. You know, If you want to try a ketogenic diet, it doesn't mean you're going to do it for the next 10 years. You do it for the next 10 weeks. You do it for the next six months, and you see what happens. If you want to try a vegan diet, you do it for the next 10 weeks, the next six months, and you see what happens. I mean there's there's so much experimentation that you can do, and if you're doing it with your healthcare practitioner, you measure your labs, you measure your weight, you measure how you feel. There's so many metrics to follow to say, is this good for me or not? Yeah. And I think that's – oh, go ahead. No, I, I just I, – I agree completely. I mean I think – you know, treating yourself kind of like as n equals one experiment because everybody's going to be everybody's an individual. Everybody's going to respond differently to different stimuli, and to just you know hone in on that and be in tune with your body—that's power. Absolutely, absolutely, and that and that's something that the medical profession really has failed on in in saying it's okay to experiment. You know, and I mean, all you got to do is look at some of these engineers around that are doing these amazing n of one experiments and trying to branch out. And of course, everybody thinks of Dave Feldman when you bring that up, but there are so many others as well. And it just shows the power of self-experimentation. And um, we need to be we need to be more open to doing that and suggest it more with our patients. Absolutely. What What are some of the uh, the controversial topics um, like that people have, especially if they're just starting the diet? You know, they've got these fears that they associate with ketogenic and high fat. What are some of those and just kind of like some of the labs that are drawn? Um, you have to almost take a, take a look at those with a different frame of context to a different lens if you're on a ketogenic diet versus an American standard American diet. So could you just kind of dive into some of the, the weeds there about just like, you know, biomarkers and what to expect on keto and kind of some of the controversy? Sure. Yeah. Well, well, the first controversy has nothing to do with labs. It just has to do with the fact that eating fat kills you. Yeah, because uh, that's been taught for you know fifty, sixty years now, and and hopefully, hopefully, thanks to Gary Tobbs and Nina Teicholtz and and the rest of the community, that that is now getting turned upside down on his head, and people, the mainstream, is starting to realize how false that is. Um, so once we get past how awful that science was, and how there is absolutely no 
uh, reliable scientific evidence to show that, then we can get past that and then we can get into the labs. And, you know, the fascinating thing with a ketogenic diet is the overwhelming majority of the labs are going to improve dramatically, whether it's your glucose, your hemoglobin A1C, which is sort of like a marker of your glucose over the past three months, your insulin level, um, your inflammation levels, which is frequently measured by a test called CRP, those are all going to improve dramatically. And then people say, well, what about the cholesterol? And that's where that's where people get really confused. And as a cardiologist, that's where I like to talk about the most because it, so much can be easily clarified. So first of all, when people talk about your total cholesterol, that your total cholesterol changes, I got to say, who cares? Total cholesterol is a combination of all your cholesterol, of your LDL, your HDL, your triglycerides, your remnant cholesterol, all those go into your total cholesterol. So what you care about more than your total cholesterol is what are the individual subsets of your cholesterol doing. So frequently what's going to happen is your HDL is going to go up and that's called the good cholesterol or protective cholesterol. You know, it, it's pretty simplistic to give cholesterol terms like that, but but it has, you know, an, an elevated HDL is associated more often with a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. Doesn't mean that it is the cause of it, or you know, it could simply mean it's a reflection of the healthy lifestyles. Um, but it also tends to go along with less insulin resistance, and so HDL going up is a good thing when you can do it naturally, and that's what happens on a low carb diet. Triglycerides going down, same thing. When that happens naturally, as almost always happens on a low-carb diet, it's incredibly beneficial. And then you can start talking about the total cholesterol to HDL ratio and the triglycerides to HDL ratio, which are, again, markers that correlate with insulin resistance and correlate with reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. And then we get down to the LDL, the so-called bad cholesterol, which again is just such an awful term. I mean, if we didn't have any LDL in our body, we would be dead. It's there for a reason and a very good reason. And people live in fear that eating more fat is going to increase your LDL and then automatically cause a heart attack. And that's just so, so, so far from the truth. When you look at these studies that have come out recently about the ketogenic diet, where whether it's the Verda Health Study or Dr. Finney's study at UCSF um, or a number of other studies that look at specific biomarkers, there are like seven or eight good quality studies that show the LDL didn't change at all, anywhere from 12 weeks to 12 months. And then there are other studies that show the LDL goes up about 10%. Um, and there are other studies that show the apolipoprotein B or ApoB, which is sort of a, a better marker for LDL than the LDL concentration because it's a reflection of what's called the LDL particle number. So the actual number of LDL particles you have swimming in your bloodstream, that that doesn't change at all, even if the LDL concentration changes a little bit. So we have all we have the evidence to say, look, cholesterol really isn't that big of a deal for most people. And in fact, it's going to get better for most people on a low-carb diet. Now, the people who it does change for, there's, there's a subset of people, and it's hard to know exactly how many because of the way the research is done, but a subset of people where LDL can go up 50 to 100%, and that's something to take note of. Whether it's dangerous is completely unknown because if that happens in the setting of the HDL going up, the triglycerides going <coughs> down, the blood sugar and insulin improving, we don't know that that's dangerous, but it's definitely something to take note of and something your doctor will definitely take note of. Um, but that's 
you know, could be as low as 5% of people um, in the lean athletic population. It could be as high as 30% of the population, but we're definitely not talking about the majority of the people going on a keto diet. So for those simple biomarkers right there that you can get on any, any blood test, you know, they're, they're easy to follow and the most are going, most are going to improve. And then we can get into the certain subsets and the type of LDL and all that as well, because those all are going to improve. So, um, you know, we have to get past that initial fear of it's going to worsen my cholesterol and, and increase my heart attack risk because it's just not backed up by science. I've gotten, you know, all my blood work done and it's, it's always improved, but I've, there are, like you said, there's several subsets of people who notice, you know, an increase in LDL. Um, and then they, cause it, I mean, I'm not assuming that the ketogenic diet is perfect for everybody. There might be some people in which they're just not able to, you know, metabolize fat as efficiently. It just might not be the best diet for them. You know, if, if that's the case and they, they notice that their LDL skyrocketed, what would you give advice was that what's the best thing that they can do with that information? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and and there is a, there are subsets like like you mentioned, um, it could be an ApoE four type of thing, a genetic variant. When you're if you're an ApoE four slash four homozygous for ApoE four, chances are you may have a harder time with the saturated fats, and it may affect your your uh, lipoproteins in a potentially deleterious way. Um, the first thing is is to find a doctor who's who has some experience in this if you can. And I know that's not always easy uh, because it, the answer isn't always going to be stop exactly what you're doing because the answer may be, well, let's look at the whole picture, see what else is improving, and then see if we can keep you on a low-carb diet but maybe with less saturated fat and see if that makes a difference. You know, increasing the monounsaturated fats and decreasing the saturated fats could have a big role in helping that cholesterol profile look a little bit better. Increasing fiber in your diet. Maybe staying low carb but not being completely keto. So adding uh, some more beans and legumes um, on that side of things if your body does okay with that. Um, you know, there are lots of different variations before saying give up on the diet is not working for you because chances are it's going to be working in other ways. And you want to try to find something that's going to keep the benefits without scaring everybody or making it look like that you could be putting yourself at increased risk. Uh, and family history plays into that. You know, the rest of your medical history plays into that and genetics certainly play into that. Very good. Very good. Um, with, with the general population whose numbers improve with keto, is there any recommendations you would give as far as, you know, percentage of saturated versus monounsaturated fats or, or if, if they do and perform well with saturated fats, is there like a limit, an upper limit to that? You know, that's a fantastic question. And uh, people like Sean Baker and Georgia Eads are certainly pushing the the envelope there, the, this whole, you know, strictly keto carnivore world. Um, and they, they're doing very well with it. But, you know, I don't know that there is any limit. And, and if there is, it's going to vary from person to person. Uh, I think that's for sure. And, the idea that there would have to be a limit would would be this idea that saturated fats could be potentially dangerous and and i don't think that's the the case in a in a fat adapted low carbohydrate low insulin scenario uh for the vast majority of people saturated fats are not going to be are not going to be dangerous um you know there's is there a potential increased benefit from monounsaturated fats there there could be you know i think the science is is a little mixed on that, whether it's just 
helping you to reduce your carbs or whether it actually adds some potential benefit. But I, you know, personally, and what I recommend is a good healthy mix of monounsaturated and saturated fats, but you tailor it to your tastes. You know, so much of nutrition um, is based on our own personal tastes, on our own personal experiences, on our um, traditions and our culture. And, you know, you've got to fit it into your lifestyle. So you, you do the best to make it the healthiest version of what fits into your lifestyle. I've got to ask now, what, what what's a typical day of eating look like for you? <laughs> you know, I, I, I struggle with that question a little bit in the keto community because I find that people in the keto community, a lot of them are foodies and a lot of them really like, you know, complex, rich keto dishes. And, and that's not me. I'm the, I'm the eat to survive kind of guy. So I, I, I truly believe in low carb and I, I focus on eating low carb, but a lot of it is actually pretty simple. Um, so people who are a little disappointed when, when I give my answers, um, and for starters, it, it starts with time restricted eating. You know, I, I, I gave up breakfast a, a while ago and haven't turned back because I think the benefits of time restricted eating are, are, are so great. Um, but I, but I definitely miss my eggs because I loved my eggs with with some veggies and uh, avocado in the morning. So I try to add that in sometimes for dinner or or add it to my dinners. And I've also recently become a fan of of Pete's Paleo, which is a a kind of you know ready made food delivery service um, where they give you you know order like six or seven meals, throw them in the freezer, throw them in the fridge, and eat them over the course of a couple weeks because life gets busy, right? You get home yeah. get home a little late. It's always hard to cook and and they have you can pick keto versions of their meals and they they do great you know tri-tip and great brisket and some great chicken and um i'll i'll frequently add some avocado oil or or throw some eggs to that um you know i'm still a still big salad and veggie guy i, I do love salads and veggies so I, I try to keep those as high fat as i can again with lots of avocado and eggs and um and olive oil and um you know the one the one weakness I have is related more to exercise. Um, when it comes to carbs, you know I, I I do an Orange Theory workout once a week. I do that fasting no problem. I'll go to the gym once a week. I do that fasting no problem. But I, I love to mountain bike, and mm -hmm. my mountain bike rides are like two two and a half hours. And trying to do those fasting, I struggle at the end. Um, so for those, I'll have a I'll, I'll carb it up a little bit, and I'll have like a little paleo granola with some berries and some nut butter. Um, and almond milk for that. So that's sort of my my carb day when I do my mountain bike ride. But otherwise, I try and keep it fairly simple and just uh, you know low carb and a good healthy mix uh, of fats, proteins. Oh man, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you a keto brick for your next bike ride, and that'll be better than the berries. All right, uh, you know what? I want to try it, and I'm also <laughs> gonna I'm also gonna do a little experiment of uh, some of these exogenous ketones um, instead of the berries and. And granola for um, for my bike rides, and I'll, I'll try a keto brick, and I'll do a little comparison, and we'll, we'll see how everything goes. Have you have you tried the exogenous ketones much? I have. Um, I tried them in the, a, a couple years ago, and you know I experimented with them for myself to try and see how how they would help um, patients. And I find them to be helpful when you're first getting into ketosis. Um, you know, I think they can help with the keto flu or the carb flu to a degree. I find them helpful when people are starting to do intermittent fasting. Um, and playing around with them for athletic performance is sort of the next stage. And and I think that's where they're going to be really fascinating for people who are fat adapted. And, you know, would a, exercising with a keto level of four or five feel different than exercising with a keto level of one or two? Um, 
because of the exogenous ketones. I think that would be pretty fascinating. But I mean, you're you're a huge athlete. You train like a, a monster. What do you find with uh, for for you know fueling up before training sessions? I don't know. I, I found that uh, I do get a benefit from it, but I'm not I'm not entirely sure that it's from the exogenous ketones so much as it is just the increase in electrolytes because they're all you know packaged with you know sodium and potassium. So I'm getting the benefit there as well. Right. Good point. Um, but yeah, I'm excited for the the ester to come back because that that'll be kind of more of a just it's just an, it's more of an extreme, and I'm an extremist at heart. <laughs> what you can ab- tell by looking at you. <laughs> what about uh, your take on like the the fasting, the intermittent fasting? What's your what's your protocol there? Well, I usually do I usually do an eighteen six protocol, um, and that's that's really for logistics. You know, I um, I've got a family with young kids and, you know, having dinner is a big part of our day. It's a big sort of social part and connection part of our day. So, uh, I want to, I want to make sure I, I'm having, taking part of that. And then, but we try to eat early, um, on the early side and then, you know, skipping breakfast is sort of the easiest logistic way to go about, um, the intermittent fasting and then, you know, good, healthy lunch, um, sometimes skipping lunch, but most of the times having a lunch and, and doing the 18, six protocol, I haven't gotten really into the extended day fast. Um, you know, I can see how they're extremely beneficial for people with diabetes, for people who are overweight, looking to lose weight. That's not me. So for me, the what's intriguing about the extended day fast is is hitting your your nutrient sensors that are harder to get to, whether it's mTOR or whether it's um, AMPK. Those are nutrient sensors that may not be affected as much by a, a low carbohydrate diet uh, and an 18-6 protocol. So there's something intriguing about that for longevity, but for but for sort of the everyday make it easy, I just think the 18-6 is, is such an easy way to do it and you still get some pretty great benefits from it, both from sort of a weight loss, fat loss, and still feel good approach, and also from hitting some of your nutrient sensors and and you know improving autophagy and there's some really good science behind it that says you you are getting the impact from it. I'm curious to I think that's gonna be my next experimentation. I'm curious to see what like a 24, 48, 36 hour fast would do from like a performance perspective. Because I mean from the the cell autophagy standpoint, like I'm I'm curious about that, but I wonder if my performance would suffer at all. Yeah, for for high intensity athletics, I I kind of feel like it has to, you know, especially if you don't have a lot of body fat to burn for fuel. Um, so I think those extended day fasts in a already low fat, you know, low body fat person, I would imagine is going to impact performance. I can't see how it wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. What about uh, the mTOR? Can you dive into that a little bit? Yeah. So mTOR is is kind of fascinating. It's um, mammalian or mechanistic target of rapamycin. And rapamycin is a drug that has a very interesting background going all the way back to Easter Island and Rapa Nui. Um, but initially was sort of an antifungal and then anti-cancer. But what they found with this with mTOR in our bodies is that it's, it's a, basically a nutrient sensor that's very sensitive to protein. And the thought is um, well, I don't, and not just a thought. I mean, there's definitely science behind it that it it's kind of can stimulate um, growth. And in people and humans, stimulating growth in adults is not always a good thing because that can mean stimulating cancer cells. It can mean stimulating um, fat deposition. And and so there's a new trend now trying to kind of minimize the effects on mTOR so that we we have less of this stimulated cell growth 
which then also can allow us to sort of do some of the cellular housekeeping and mitochondrial housekeeping since we're not focused so much on the growth. Um, but obviously some degree of growth is important for survival. So it's one of those things where we need mTOR. You know, we don't want to get rid of our mTOR. Um, but the theory being if we can sort of regulate how much it's turned on so that it's not overly turned on and we're not overly stimulating growth, then, then maybe we're going to improve our longevity. We're going to decrease our risk of cancer. We're going to decrease our risk of some other chronic diseases. Um, you know, maybe even plaque deposition in our brains for Alzheimer's dementia. So there, there's some fascinating theories behind it. And, and it is mostly sensitive to proteins. And that's where you'll hear a lot of people, even in the keto low-carb community, saying we need to limit our proteins specifically for its effect on mTOR. And, you know, I'm sort of still on the fence on that one. Um, I don't think chronic protein limitation is where we need to go, but certainly, you know, intermittent is is perfectly fine because, again, we do need mTOR and we don't want to get rid of it. Um, we want it to be stimulated, just not overly stimulated. So um, that's where I, where I sort of sit on the fence a little bit, I guess, with it. And I wouldn't tell people necessarily to restrict their proteins chronically because of it, but you know, that's where the intermittent fast can certainly be beneficial or even, you know, a day or two of protein fast and just do, um, a fat fast essentially where you're, where you're taking fat, but not protein for that day or two. Uh, there are lots of different variations you can try and, you know, do we have solid long-term evidence to prove this is going to be beneficial? No, of course not. We don't, but, um, there's lots of really fascinating evidence to suggest that there's going to be some benefit from it. And that's where that's where it's sort of fun, where we don't know what we're doing. We have to admit we don't know what we're doing, but we can come up with all sorts of theories and different ways to try and play with it and test it and kind of see what happens. That's the beauty of it, right? Oh, yeah. You got it. Is there like a evidence of a threshold point? And like, I mean, obviously, that's going to be different for every individual. But, you know, at what point is it too much stimulation? Mm, that's a great question. I... I don't know the answer to that question. I, I don't know that anybody really does. Um, but that's certainly something that I hope people are looking into and, and we can find some way to regulate it. But I, yeah, I wouldn't know where to begin to answer that. I feel like I'm painted into a corner as a bodybuilder. I'm trying to get as much growth as possible, but minimize cancer cell growth, obviously. Right, right. So that's that's an interesting uh, sort of juxtaposition for you because growth is definitely a good thing, right? Without growth, you would not be looking the way you look. Um, but you got you have to get the right kind of growth, and hopefully by keeping insulin at at a basement level, you know, super low, that you're getting the right kind of growth. And maybe throwing in, you know, a day or two of low protein on your lower intensity workout days um, could be beneficial, and then higher protein the other days, so that it's not constantly stimulated. You know, there's an ebb and a flow, an up and a down on the mTOR stimulation. That is one main concern, and I, I don't know the answer to this. I can't really speak on it. Uh, but like just in the bodybuilding community and oftentimes just in the health and fitness community as a whole, you know, people are always told they need their protein. I mean, some of the competitors I'm up against are taking in, you know, 300 plus grams a day. And I would have to assume that that would be, you know, I mean, and with their insulin, with their carbs being so high as well, you know, high protein, high carb, it's like just a breeding ground for, you know, negative cell growth as well. Yeah, now that's that's the danger that I see with the high carb, high insulin, high protein. I think that's the soup you want to avoid because you stir that together and that's when you can start to get some problems. Um, you know, that's where the evidence would suggest you're going to get the more deleterious growth patterns. Um, so, 
you know, for someone who looks so strong and healthy on the outside may not be so on the inside when, when that's the, the mix that they're eating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's competitors that are, you know, taking in additional insulin just for, you know, the growth benefits of it, which right. that, that's, just that's so scary. Yeah. I can't yeah. even imagine. <laughs> I think the people, I mean, from a bodybuilding perspective, people just need to remove themselves from all the add-ons and focus on what the body is truly capable of as a standalone. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, it's so interesting though. Anytime you throw competition into the mix, people aren't going to be happy with that, right? Because people are always going to look for, for the upper the upper hand when it comes to competition. So if you're bodybuilding for the sake of bodybuilding and not competing, that's one thing. But once you start competing, and you see that in any sport, I mean, everybody's looking for the next thing that's going to help them. And, you know, long-term health consequences are not the first thing on their mind when they're talking about competing. Um, yeah, so, you know, the other thing is is – the concept of carb cycling for training and competition. Now, I don't know how that would work for bodybuilding, but in my world of sort of cycling and running and, you know, there's some, it makes some degree of sense to the train low race high in terms of your, your carb intake. So it's a, a cycle rather than a constant high carb nutrition. I don't know if that would work for bodybuilding or not. So yeah, kind of dive into the, the cycling, like what, what guys into that? How long have you been doing it? And kind of what are your techniques and protocols with that as it relates to, you know, keto and performance optimization? Yeah, well, I, I got into it. Uh, I recently had uh, Tim Noakes on, on my podcast and I, I had to yell at him a little bit because I got it in, into it in the 80s and I listened to him for high carb, high carb, high carb. So, yeah. you know, I, I started out with doing triathlons in the late 80s and through the 90s um, when the whole world was was high carb for, for racing. Um, and as I got into the longer distance events, like the Ironman events, I struggled, you know, and my nutrition struggled. And I really, really wish I knew then what I know now. I, th I feel like I would be so much better if I had, you know, the, the, the fitness and the inability to get injured of my 20s with the nutritional information I have now. But unfortunately, life doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, but that's how I got started. And, you know, I, I was doing triathlons, and then I was got into marathons. And then, you know, and then life got busy, right? Then there's residency and fellowship and medical practice. And then I, you know, I never gave it up. I just stopped competing in it. Um, always running, always cycling, um, and still swimming a little bit. And, and for me, it was as much psychological as it was physical. You know, when you grow up doing it and you just, it just becomes what you love. And if, man, did I get grumpy if I had a week where I didn't get my bike rides and my runs and my swims in, I just got grumpy. And so it was, it, it was as much, you know, just staying sane as it was staying fit. But what what's interesting is sort of how I've transformed since then. And it's been a couple of things. One has been time pressure. You know, I don't really have the time now to go for three, four hour bike rides like I used to do. But the other is the, the knowledge of the what interval training does for you. You know, I used to hate interval training and I hated lifting weights. If I wanted to be on my bike for four hours, why would I want to be in a gym doing lifting weights? Ugh, it was like the worst thing I can do. Do, do. I've turned that on its head because I've seen the science behind lifting weights and resistance training and, and how beneficial that is and interval training. And when you get down to the cellular level and the mitochondrial level and um, and also for insulin resistance and glucose utilization, I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive science. So I've started to change, um, because of that, I guess. And now I've, I've fallen in love with it. You know, I, these 
50 minute orange theory, high intensity interval training workouts. Like I, I look forward to those every week. And part of it is competing with yourself and pushing yourself and, you know, reminding yourself of your competitive days for that 50 minutes you're in there. Um, and part of it is just, you know, knowing that you're really getting a fantastic workout in a short amount of time. Um, but you could tell me that, you know, mountain biking is going to give me cancer and make me die five years earlier. And I would just put my fingers in my ears and say, la, 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 and go yeah. biking anyway. You know, some things you just need for your soul and for your, for your brain more than anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. So on the, on the high intensity interval training and the, and the weightlifting, as it relates to your performance biking, what, what have you noticed there? And like, just from like a, you know, a actual diving into the cellular level of high intensity interval training, like what does that do for your body? Yeah, well, I think w one thing it does is it certainly helps your cardiometabolic fitness. You know, it's going to push your VO2 max. And that that's sort of the macro and the micro level. Because when you think about how the body's working under strain, it's working that way from the small cells in your muscles all the way up to your lungs and your heart. So if you're pushing that to the max and, and past the, the uh, aerobic threshold on a regular basis, you're – you're going to slowly start to increase how much work those cells can do from the microscopic to the macroscopic level. And you're going to increase the amount of work that your heart and your lungs are able to do by pushing it past that threshold, obviously in a safe and graded way. Um, and what I found is, you know, I'm 45 years old and I found that my, my times on the treadmill are getting better. Uh, my times on the bike are getting better. I mean, it's, the, the increased strength and increased interval training is only it, helping things improve. And I've, I've been, I guess, a little bit surprised by that, but very impressed and very happy with it. And it just, it makes it more fun too. You know, I, I go biking with a, a group of guys um, and I like to try and kill them. <laughs> I like yeah. to try and push them and, and make them hurt. And they do the same to me. And it's, that makes it so much more fun when you can really keep up at a high level. And I, I really credit a lot of the interval training and weightlifting to helping me do that. Have you noticed anything uh, with regard to like fat loss and composition change from interval training versus like, you know, a low intensity, uh, steady state cardio, for instance? Yeah, good question. Um, yes. I think the, the answer is definitely yes, because I've, I've gotten a little more muscular, um, and a little more lean body mass and by default then a little less fat mass. Um, I guess it hasn't been a, a dramatic change because I don't lift to get big. I don't lift to build muscle, but you know, even not trying to do that, I have noticed the change. And, and I think that's one of the important things when you talk to about people who aren't into athletic performance, they're just trying to be healthy. And some people don't see the benefit of weightlifting, uh, resistance training or interval training, but when when they can lose fat mass and improve lean body mass, it can make a huge difference in their health. You know, for you and I, we're talking about performance, uh, probably a little bit more than health is going to impact that more than it's going to impact our health, although still have an impact on it. But for the average person who's starting out, it can make a tremendous difference. And that's why I think it's such an important thing for people to realize that, you know, 20 minutes on the elliptical is not optimal exercise for your health. If you're a couch potato, good, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. But it's not the end all be all. We need to help people sort of progress to that point where they are going to improve their lean body mass and decrease their fat mass. Do you have like a preferred type of, you know, hit training like for someone that doesn't have any equipment, like sprints, interval sprints, like what would you recommend? Yeah, if you if you don't have equipment, um, 
then usually running is going to be the best thing. Um, and even if it's, you know, walking up a steep hill or doing short 30 second sprints. Um, but I, I prefer people start with equipment because when you start out, I think the bike is, or the elliptical is the best place to do it because for people who aren't used to interval training, um, or aren't used to running, sprinting can be a challenge, um, hard to do and feel comfortable doing and can increase injury risk. So I love starting people up on, on a stationary bike because I think that's the best place to do, you know, 30 to 60 seconds on and then 60 seconds off and then do it again and do it again. And, you know, I wouldn't push the intervals more than 60 seconds to, to begin with because people need to start to learn what it feels like to work hard. You know, you and I probably take it for granted. We can push to our max and be relatively comfortable doing it. But for someone who's just starting out, that is going to be an awful feeling for most people. So I want people to sort of start small and and get used to that feeling and realize they're not going to die. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to be just wiped out the rest of the day. They are going to recover um, and and have them slowly build up. I think that's the key is to to start slow in terms of the number of intervals, the length of intervals, and then build it up from there. And having a bike or a rower or something to sort of take off the impact when you start, I think is key. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, I don't know though, I still think intervals on the bike are awful feeling. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. what, what's a, I'd love for you to just kind of like take this and run with it, but what are what are some things that are, you're working on now, like in the medical industry, for instance, that you're excited about? Like what, are you, what research are you diving into? Like what are you passionate and excited about right now? Mm, that's a great question. Uh, what am I passionate about? I mean, I'm really just passionate about learning more about how the low carb lifestyle impacts different aspects of our health. Things like mTOR, things like reducing risk of Alzheimer's dementia. Um, you know, there there's fascinating research coming out about that. One thing I, I want to start exploring, but haven't really, is is this concept of you know the low carb ketogenic diet versus a low carb diet that's not ketogenic and where the line is in terms of health benefits because you know some people say the benefits of the ketogenic diet is because the insulin level is low and ketones are just sort of a byproduct of that and some people say though no, the ketones actually have direct beneficial properties in our body and i have to say i, I i'm not well versed um to discuss that in depth but that's something i want to sort of get into a little bit because you know, let's face it, some people struggle staying in ketosis. Um, some people can do it without a problem. So for those who struggle, the question is, how much do we need to encourage them and push them to get into ketosis? Or how much, you know, can we just say, all right, you know, you're pretty close. Um, you're not there, but you're still pretty low carb. So you're still getting 90% of the benefit, 80% of the benefit, you know, 95% of the benefit, whatever it may be. So trying to find out where that that balance is and where that line is, I think will be fascinating. And how things like mTOR and AMPK and insulin levels and ketone levels, how all that plays into the mix for our health. Now, I know there's not going to be an easy answer for that, and it's probably not going to be for for years and years any kind of an answer. But uh, that's kind of the exploration I think is going to be fascinating. And then the other part is logistics. You know, as a doc trying to reach as many people as I can, How? what is the best means to get this information in people's laps so that they can easily digest it, no pun intended, understand it, and put it into their life? What are the, what are the barriers that people are encountering and how can we help them get over it on a big scale so that this becomes more popular, both 
you know, from an individual person standpoint and from a medical standpoint. So that's the other side of things. There's the sort of the science of it and then the practical application of it. And uh, all those I think are just going to be fascinating and we're going to get a lot of new information coming out in the next few years. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's that's why I love business so much because business is basically the manifestation of finding ways to, to scale and get your message in front of other people and impacting, you know, having a, a bigger impact, which, I mean, if you, you've got the podcast like you do, you've got the website like you're doing everything right. Yeah, right, right. Um, I've got the Balance Health podcast. I've got the uh, Low Carb Cardiologist website and um, trying to get the information out there in so many different ways. And I, I wrote a book, Your Best Health Ever, that, that's on Amazon. And it's just sort of, one, exploring these things that I think are fascinating to do. And two, really present the information in so many different ways. Because some people are going to learn better listening to a podcast in their car. Some people are going to learn better sitting down reading a book. Um, and some people are going to learn better having little snippets um, of blogs one at a time. And everybody's a little bit different and, uh, you know, trying to find ways to reach people as much as possible. I agree. I think, I think I, I don't know, I'm excited to see the the separation. I feel like there's like just a wall built, you know, whether real or subconscious between like the, the medical professionals and like the general public. And I, I'm excited to see you know, with the internet and the podcasting and just the, the media in general, that wall dissolves so that, you know, there's there's more collaboration and more communication there. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And hopefully that's the natural progression of things. Absolutely. Yes, def- definitely, definitely. Um, well, I don't know how, how you're doing on time, uh, Dr. Sure, I don't want to, I know you're a busy guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, I've got a few more minutes, so. Perfect, perfect. Well, I I really would like to uh, just just real quick. You'd mentioned kind of the difference between you know keto versus you know just low carb. What would be the distinguishing factor there? Because if people are you know low carb but not keto, is just a manipulation of ratios in the fats and the proteins. But I mean, if their proteins are too high and their fats are too low and they're low carb, that would kind of activate the mTOR more, like you were saying earlier. Right, right. That's a great point. Yeah, I mean, it, it all it all comes down to the macros when you're talking about whether you're in ketosis or not. And, you know, there's this fear that too much protein is going to stimulate gluconeogenesis and kick us out of ketosis. And I just had a good discussion with uh, Professor Ben Bickman about that. He's, uh, he's a big proponent of don't worry about your protein intake. Um, don't worry about gluconeogenesis. We need it. But then there's also the, the issue of just how, how many carbs – people can live without, right? And there are some people who aren't going to be able to get 30 grams of carbs. They're going to be more around the 75 grams. Um, so I guess the question is, how does that affect your insulin level? Because when the insulin level is high, obviously it's going to shut down ketosis. So if you're low carb, but not in ketosis, it's a sign that your insulin level is up. But is it up to any dangerous degree? And I think that's sort of the question that I don't know the answer to, because it's clear when your ketones are up, your insulin level is rock bottom low, and that's fantastic. But is there any danger in it being a little bit up so that you're not in ketosis? And it comes down to the carbs. Um, it all comes down to the carbs. And our society is such a carb society, and that's where I find most people struggle in, in staying in ketosis. Um, and, you know, is there any danger in being in ketosis part of the time, not in part of the time? 
you know, if you are a carb fiend and not being in ketosis means you're having just hundreds of grams of carbohydrates and sugar, then of course that's not what you want. But if if not being in ketosis means you go from 30 grams of carbs to 60 grams of carbs and it's still high quality carbs, kind of hard to argue with that for, for most people if they've made significant improvements from where they started. And I guess that's the other fascinating thing about ketosis is that some people need 30 grams or less to have a measurable BHB level. Some people can be 50, 60, 70 instead of measurable BHB levels. And that could be due to physical activity, resting metabolic rate, and just, you know, differences from one person to another. So I think that's the other interesting thing. I'm not sure if I answered your question there, but I think I went off on a little ramble. No, no, it's, it's totally good. Um, have you done like those kind of just self-experimentations on yourself and found yourself performing better with, you know, fewer carbs or greater carbs or higher protein? Like, have you tried that on you? You know, I haven't, I haven't experimented a whole lot with the difference in proteins. It's been more the difference in carbs that I've experimented with because my family is a huge sweet potato and beets family. You know, we, we look for any, any way to get kid, our, my kids to eat healthier. And we found that, you know, if you mix sweet potatoes with something, they're going to eat it. So that's sort of been our secret sauce. And so I did a lot of experimenting with root veggies, um, with the sweet potato and the beets and, and parsnips and carrots and, and to see how much of that would, would sort of kick me out. And I, I've been trying to refine the line, you know, I'm like, that's my cheat, I guess. I, I try and get as much of that as possible and still maintain decent levels on certain days. So that's more the experimentation I've done, not so much from the protein side of things, but I think that would be interesting to, to get more into that as well. Yeah. I'm definitely curious about the protein intake. Um, cause like, like, especially with like the rise of carnivore being so popular right now, like people are by default getting in significantly more protein, uh, than the standard, you know, ketogenic ratios if they're going carnivore. Um, so I'm curious to see if, if that has an advantageous effect in the long run. Yeah, I think that's a great question. A great question that, that you know, again, there's so much individual variation on that, but it, it's um, it's fascinating to watch people do. I, I don't think I could ever personally be a keto carnivore, but it's fascinating to, to see people do it and thrive on it um, from what we can tell, you know, so it's uh, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. What is your take on, I mean, a lot of people argue that your body can only digest so much protein at a time anyway. So any over that surplus is just going to trigger additional gluconeogenesis, which then we come into the argument of, is that a bad thing in the first place? But I mean, for me personally, like when I increase my protein intake, I notice a, you know, correlating increase in my blood glucose. Oh, you do. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, when you look at someone like Sean Baker, he's the he's the quintessential keto carnivore, and he had high fasting blood glucose, and he had an elevated hemoglobin A1C, which, you know, you look at that, and you're like, okay, this guy's basically diabetic, and then you look at his postprandial glucoses after he eats that he's been posting, and they're like 70 and 80, and it's it's phenomenal to see that variation from the fasting to the postprandial and I've got to be honest, I, I mean, I don't know what to make of all that other than to, other than to say um, it shows his body is not having a high insulin spike to the food he's eating. Um, and it seems like maybe his body's trying to prepare for all his incredible physical activity by raising his glucose when it needs to. But that's all, you know, theoretical. Um, so how this will impact other people who are less active is another really interesting question um, because – they're not burning the, the same amount of calories. They're they're not utilizing the same energy sources. Uh, so it's probably going to impact them differently. Um, yeah, and in, in terms of how much 
you know, protein your body can digest, again, that's going to be different for everybody and different for activity levels. So uh, I think that's going to be a hard thing to to quantify across populations. Yeah, I agree. What's a, I don't really, it really all boils down to people just taking their health in their own hands and kind of experimentation and seeing what they perform and, and feel good with. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. What are some like if, if somebody's just wanting to be, because I'm very data-oriented, um, what, what are some metrics, some tests that you would recommend people get that are wanting to dive into this lifestyle or kind of refine it further to just have a good pulse on how their body's responding internally? Well, one of the best things I think is is lean body mass, body fat percentage. Um, you know, and that, you can measure that in so many different ways, either with a um, you know, one of the, the scales, um, that measures it, um, you know, maybe not the most accurate. You can do the, the, I'm blanking on the term now, but the calipers, um, mm. and then to really get into it, you do something like the bod pot or, or you get dunked and you do the, the weight, the uh, underwater weighing. Um, I think that's a great thing to do to start and then do it again in, you know, three or six months from a medical side of things, you know, following your, uh, fasting insulin, um, getting an oral glucose tolerance test is also something you can do, uh, which is kind of nasty. You drink this 75 gram carbohydrate shake and then get blood tests in an hour and two hours to see what your glucose and insulin are doing. I mean, that's something that can really show you, you how your body responds to that glucose. Um, and if you're more insulin sensitive or not, um, obviously following your HDLs, your triglycerides, your LDLs is very important following your inflammation markers like your CRP. Because uh, these are, you know, this is all part of the multifactorial approach to your health, not just your heart health, but your brain health, and so much more. You know, it's it's not just one marker. You have to follow all those things. Do you think that the longer you're in ketosis and, and you know adapted in a ketogenic state, your your body becomes uh, less equipped for dealing with glucose? Like, do you kind of lose some of that metabolic flexibility? You lose metabolic flexibility the longer you're in ketosis. Hmm. Interesting question. I, I don't know the answer to that. I I would assume not, um, because it's not like your pancreas is diseased or shut down. You know, your pancreas is still going to be a healthy pancreas able to respond with with the insulin that it needs to handle the glucose. And your cells have now become so sensitive to insulin. Um, and your cells have learned to utilize glucose so much better that I would think you probably never truly lose it. And you, you should always maintain some of that metabolic flexibility um, from my sort of initial thought of that. Okay, that's, that's, that's good. That's been one, I've gotten that question a lot lately, and I didn't know what the, the best response would be because, I mean, some people assume that basically the inverse of what happens when you get onto a ketogenic diet after being carb-adapted for so long would happen if you know, the inverse occurred. Um, and I didn't know if that was the case or not. Yeah. And, and I don't know. I, I, you know, my answer is certainly not fact and steeped in science. It's sort of my, my hypothesis based on just thinking about how cells respond to glucose and insulin and how your pancreas, uh, you know, functions churning out insulin. So I, I would think you would maintain that sensitivity and flexibility. Do you like, have you had like a, a carb laden meal anytime in the not so distant past and noticed like a negative, <laughs> negative response at all? Yeah, I have. I have. We um we we traveled. We went out skiing with the kids, and um you know it was a little harried, and we just had to grab whatever food we could. And um 
I didn't really pay much attention to it. And you know, you have a lot of, you have a lot of carbs and the next day you, you certainly notice, um, you know, I, I haven't done the, you know, chocolate cake, sugar, sweets kind of thing. I just, I've completely lost my taste for that. I wouldn't even want to do that, but I've heard, I've heard some people, um, who are, you know, fat adapted and keto and then just blow it on all that sugar. uh, They feel terrible. And I, I'd imagine I would as well. So, you know, when I have a high carb meal, you know, maybe it's because of too much fruit and too much vegetables. So, you know, I notice maybe being a little sluggish, but I don't feel terrible. Like I imagine I would if I, if I hit the cookies and the candy and the cake and, um, you know, my, my one weakness that I, that I have been able to avoid are, are dark chocolate sea salted cashews. Um, I could probably go to town on a, I could go to town on a whole bag of those, but I haven't done that lately. So I'd be curious how I feel after that. Do you eat a lot of like 100% chocolate now? I don't. I've sort of gotten away from just any chocolate, any sweets. Um, you know, I was I wasn't a huge chocolate sweet person to begin with. It's really just those chocolate covered cashews that would that would get me going. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not one of those guys who looks for ways to increase sweets or increase treats and make keto treats and you know keto friendly chocolate. For me, I just don't need it. It doesn't it doesn't really do anything for me. Um, yeah. Ruling your food instead of letting the the food rule you is a good good philosophy to have, in my opinion, for sure. Yeah, yeah. How about you? Do you get into the the dark chocolate and the keto treats and all that? I'd imagine not. No, nah, but... not not so much the treats. I'll, I'll get some. I'll just get like the hundred percent chocolate occasionally, just to you know satisfy that craving. But you know, one square of you know that hundred percent's so bitter, it pretty much cures that craving pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. It's it's almost like it's not even chocolate when it's hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, well, Dr. Sherp, I know you got a lot going on. I, I just want to thank you again for your time. Where, where can people go to find out more about you, listen to your podcast? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, they can go to lowcarbcardiologist.com. Um, they can also find me on iTunes or Stitcher, the Boundless Health Podcast, which probably pretty soon is going to change over to the Low Carb Cardiologist Podcast. Um, and then my book on Amazon, Your Best Health Ever. Any of those ways are, are, are good ways to, get in, uh, to learn more about me, and you can always get in touch with me through my website. And Happy to help however I can. Very cool, very cool. I I can't thank you enough for, you know, being, I don't know, it, it's, it's cool to see medical professionals such as yourself being open to, you know, the ketogenic lifestyle and kind of, you know, just changing, having that shift in thinking from what we've been told our whole lives. Yeah, and it's uh, hopefully going to be more and more common. That's a big, big goal of mine and a big charge that I want to do is, is help the medical profession learn more about this and become more accepting of it. Um, that would be a huge benefit for patients' health across across the country, across the world. So hopefully that will happen. I agree. Well, if there's ever anything I can do for you, just let me know. Well, keep doing what you're doing. Keep up with your great podcast. I appreciate it. Likewise, sir. Take care, doctor. I appreciate you. <laughs>